0: June 22nd, 1983. Recording the 11th annual Santa Barbara Writers Conference. This is tape number 14. The, the word dialogue is a little bit hard to trace. I when I knew I was going to do this little monologue on dialogue, I tried to find where the word came from. And the best I can come up with is a kind of deduced impression that it came from two Greek words dia logos, or two words as in the beginning was the word and the word was with God or two gods because I guess the Greeks were pantheistic and uh, instead of having a one God of creation they had a kind of father mother proton neutron concept so the dialogue is a very basic thing to all human development and culture and, of course, then, uh, writing is a, is a series of personal discoveries, um, which is what makes it at once difficult and, 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 uh, and compelling. Uh, you, know, you can't really get taught how to write. You continue along and you are stimulated, and you make discoveries as you go. And uh, I remember when I was... Starting out, I said, well, I want to be a writer, and I was a teenager, and I I said, what do you do to become a writer? And I was told, you develop your own style. So I spent a long time struggling to develop my own style. When I sat down to write, I was writing my own style, and I wasn't writing about anything. So uh, finally I said, hey, there's something wrong with this. Uh, the, the, The fiction, fictional things that I, whether they be novels, stories, movies, or whatever, that I remember best, I remember because of the characters and what happened to them and what the characters meant to me. And so uh, then I began to get into the idea of characters are really what create stories. And then it dawned on me that it was dialogue that creates characters. And finally it kind of, sunk into me, that it's the author's dialogue with the characters, those figments of his imagination, be they taken from real-life models or uh, simply conjured up out of wherever it is that things come to mind from. Uh, in order to make them become real to the mind, to the imagination of readers, you have to get them down in words on paper. Even if you're doing a screenplay and you're going to use actors or a play with with actors and a set design, (coughs) the the, uh, movie will do a lot of your imagining for you. Uh, You'll be able to see the character in the setting, but with a novel you have to uh, kind of give the reader the wherewithal to create a movie in his own mind to become his own director. And you do that to a large extent with dialogue, and in fact... Even if you're writing from the author's omniscient point of view, it's really a dialogue between the writer and the reader about the story, about the characters. So then I came up with a kind of rule of thumb that I've stayed with for some time, and I kind of refer back to it now and then, and this is one of those ends. Uh, there are, I think of that, there are the five dialogues on the way to creating a, a a piece of fiction, a short story or a novel, and the other day, oh, about a couple of weeks ago, I got an idea which may become a novel. I'm playing around with it and I hauled out these five There's my little rule of thumb to look at them and uh, I'll read them off to you. There's the author's dialogue with the world. I think that kind of begins at conception and doesn't end till death. I mean, each person has his own dialogue with the world as he finds it from conception to death. And out of that dialogue, um, writers will select incidents and people that become characters and plot or characters and story. And So the second dialogue is the dialogue between the writer and his characters. And uh, I think that's a very key dialogue because to the degree that you as a writer can bring alive those figments of your imagination, uh, you can have the possibility of putting them down in words on paper in such a way that they will come alive in the minds of readers. It's a very serious discussion, isn't it? <laughs> and so uh, once they're alive, then you set them in, in motion. So here the third dialogue is the characters with their worlds. And I think of this as sometimes I interview my characters. I write questions out for them. and uh, Maybe it takes a couple days for them to uh, kind of, you know, for me to be able to hear them in my mind replying. I have brown hair and I'm six feet two and blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, I don't like that and I'm a whatever. They say start talking to you. You know, I I think fiction writers have all had that experience. So uh, you find out about... Their basic beliefs about the world their uh, reflex responses to things and then in in the process of writing there's the characters dialogues with each other uh, and or sometimes they have monologues which contrast you know you'll read the monologue of one character I mean Faulkner did this years ago uh, he told a lot of his stories with sort of altered not the monologue for one character and the monologue from another and finally there's the uh, dialogue between the reader and the characters uh, speaking and acting and communicating their story so those are the what I think of as the five dialogues that create characters and characters create stories and then there are uh, we all have the experience of uh, those at least I do. I maybe I'm speaking for too many others here. Huh? Uh, there's times when you're in, at a party, you're walking down the street, and you overhear a snatch of dialogue from real life from people, and uh, some of them I I know stick in my mind for years, and I keep thinking, well, someday I'll do something with that. I'll make a story, or you know, I'll find a way to to handle that, and and something will grow out of it in in the way of a piece of writing. And well, one of the dialogues I like to remember I I it keeps coming back to me is one that is I've had ever since uh I kind of announced that I'm a writer. And I it goes like this Are you working, Bob? Yes. Good. Where? At home. What? You don't have a job? No, I'm working. So and uh and it was another dialogue that kind of keeps spinning around in my mind that I kind of keep going back to that I think is very basic to a, a kind of a seedling of a novel, but it just hasn't quite gotten done yet by me. And it, I, it was overheard from two Italian, two teenage Italian boys from South Philadelphia while they were walking down the boardwalk in Atlantic City. And the one says, who are your two uncles? And the other says, they Bretta's." One brother, he's rich, he's smart. The other brother is poor, he's dumb. The other, the, other bro- the other guy said, oh, that's life, huh? You know. <laughs> but the writing of dialogue is uh, kind of tricky business, and even old masters can go awry sometimes and, uh, and do boo-boos, which uh, usually get caught before they wind up in print. But sometimes even old masters wind up in print with uh, bad dialogue. I mean, it's kind of easy to see tell what bad dialogue is. What good dialogue is is more or less after the fact. Does it stick with you for years? But uh, bad dialogue is fairly easy. And it's always heartening to me when I th- I'm down in the dumps and thinking, oh, woe is me, how am I going to do this, and et cetera and so forth, to think uh, that, well, even a, even Hemingway goofed. And he goofed kind of big here in this one exchange. In fact, he, because he was such a master and because this novel, The Old Man and the Sea, it was after that came out that he won the Nobel Prize. Uh, this piece of snatch of dialogue gets uh, picked up by books on how to become a writer and or how not to become a writer or what not to do once you become a writer. And it's, a, it's an exchange between the old man and the boy. And the old man says... You nearly were killed when I brought the fish in, too green, and he nearly tore the boat to pieces. Can you remember? And the boy says, I can remember the tail slapping and banging, and the thwart breaking, and the noise of the clubbing. I can remember you throwing me into the bow, where the wet, coiled lines were, and feeling the whole boat shiver, and the noise of you clubbing him, like chopping a tree down, and the sweet blood smell all over me. Well, of course, that doesn't sound very much like a, t- like a Cuban boy. That sounds remarkably like Hemingway, the author. (laughs) (laughs) That's an example of how not to write dialogue, and that's why I always try to, you know, there are these maxims, rules of thumb, basic precepts about fiction writing, uh, show, don't tell, conflict, get to the conflict quickly, establish the characters quickly, etc., and uh, I have one that's that is get inside the characters, uh, and write from inside the characters. Because if you if you uh, don't have the characters conjured to the point where they're real to you, you're going to have a very tough time stuffing words in their mouths that will come over to the reader as you know being that character. Um, so then I have some other little rules of thumb. I'm going to first do this monologue on dialogue and then I hope we can have a dialogue about dialogue. Uh, I've got three more little rules of thumb here. I said be selective, be concise, and be consistent. Now, uh, in fiction as contrasted with real life, in real life, of course, people are not consistent and we can be different people at different times uh, in in the course of one day, but uh, In fiction if a character is inconsistent it better have to do with the story or it's going to come off as being implausible even though if you're copying real life too exactly that's what will happen the character will come off seeming unreal (laughs) and uh, you don't want to throw a lot of printed jabber at the reader and bury the the pertinent points in all this verbiage so you it's good to be concise and And, of course, being selective, it kind of goes without saying that even when you're selecting directly from life, you can't, say, run the whole transcript of the tape for for the reader. You've got to select out what is meaningful and construct the story artfully. And uh, I think there's great value in having characters tell the story. I guess that's why I got into... uh, maybe I uh, don't write prose well but in any case I got into doing I like to write monologues and tell the story from monologues from inside the character and of course in my uh, most famous book $100 misunderstanding I kind of hit upon a way to do contrasting monologues or monologues and dialogue as I like to think of them and uh, seems that that you cut through a lot of need to describe the characters describe themselves more eloquently than you, the author, can. And uh, then they, do, they describe each other, they uh, describe their, uh, you know, they <laughs> tell who they think they are as compared to who the other one thinks they are, and so you get a much richer, more rounded, multi-dimensional concept of each character that way. <laughs> um, a lot of people Ask me uh, how I wrote Hundred Dollar Misunderstanding since that's the novel that most people associate me with or that have heard of it, the novel. And uh, I struggled for a long time to do something with uh, the subject of race relations. And uh, in fact, I had a a very sort of serious literary attempt going when I sort of stood back and looked at it, it was about 1959, and I said, hey, there's something wrong with this. The subject itself is so grim, it needs something else, and it needs the other perspective, it needs the black perspective. I think I was trying to imitate Norman Mailer at the time, but anyway, or I was unconsciously imitating Norman Mailer. Uh, (coughs) So I hit upon the idea that if I had uh, the female the girl in the story tell her version it would become something else it would become much more lively and then i said well how can i do that you know i can't put my debts could I, is that possible and i uh played around with the idea and pretty soon kitten began to come alive in my mind and pretty soon i was able to write from within. inside her and she was mm, as much alive as the real people in my life and so was jc the, the two characters in the book and uh so I, I really thought I, I finished that one, I said, boy, I finally nailed it down here. I really got a novel written, I sent it to my agent, and he sent it right back with an insulting letter saying he never wanted to see me again. And uh, this was the worst pile of trash I'd, you know, he'd ever read, and uh, he was greatly disappointed in me. And this was a shock to me, because he was like a father figure to me, he'd been kind of uh, ushering me along, you know, shepherding me along through this trauma of trying to get published. And, uh, so I hung my head for a while and then his partner called and said he loved it. And so I sent it back to his partner. And his partner then sent it out to some editors in New York and they sent it back and said it was the biggest pile of trash they'd ever seen and don't (laughs) ever talk to him again. And and so he said, well, uh, he said he'll send it to his uh, associate in Paris. And of course this partner, his first language was Hungarian, and he didn't speak very good English, and so at this point I began to get a little blurred about where it was going and how, why, And but I was kind of uh, shocked because I thought it was a good novel, and I couldn't realize, I couldn't understand why all these people were jumping on it and calling it trash, trash. <laughs> but he went to Paris, and I suddenly got a glowing letter from uh, the agent over there who was uh, born in Russia, grew up speaking three languages and was blinded in, in the resistance in Paris and uh, married an American girl, American woman who read his manuscripts to him. And he wrote me this wonderful letter and said, "This is great literature." I said, "Wow." And so he uh, sent it to a French publisher and they said, "This is great literature." and we, they got a translator, but in the meanwhile, a British publisher came along, picked it up made a deal with me in which he got 100 percent of the English language rights in exchange for me getting 100 percent of the dramatic rights. And he brought out a, an edition which Gore Vidal and Henry Miller read while in transit from one continent to the other, and they more or less promoted it and got it uh, published over here after, well, Grove, had re- Grove Press brought out the hardback. Grove had rejected it three times by then because uh, people kept sending it to them and they kept sending it back. <laughs> But uh, the English publisher made a deal with Ballantyne for the paperback edition, and then Ballantyne made a deal with Grove for the American hardback, and the American hardback came out and zipped up the bestseller list. And to everybody's surprise, except I must c- confess mine, because I thought people would like it. Uh, so that's how it came out, and now, by the time $100 Misunderstanding was coming out in the American edition, edition in this country, And zipping up the bestseller list, and I was stony broke the second of the trilogy because I decided that, uh, about a year before that, that uh, I really hadn't completed uh, the story of these two characters, or else they wouldn't leave me alone, one or the other. And Anyway, so I wrote a second, which I originally entitled A Dire Predicament, and it, it was coming out in French when the American hardback of $100 was coming out in America under the title uh, Un sale Situation. And uh, I'd never been to France, incidentally, by this time, so I was just getting a newspaper copy that I couldn't read and was having to rush around and find somebody who could translate from the French and tell me what they were saying, you know. Um, so, when the... it Finally, I began to get to work on a third, which eventually became J.C. Saves, after all the, you know, the, after I ran from the hoopla of $100 because it gets pretty intense in New York if you got a bestseller, especially if it's a surprise and especially if it's uh, risque. Uh, So I kind of ran down to Florida and wrote J.C. Saves and um, and then I wanted to get all three under one cover but it took me a long time. In fact, it took me until 1981 or 82 to do that but here it is. It's under one cover and uh, to kind of Demonstrate, Of course, I, you know, I can only talk about dialogue from my own personal experiences, like what I know is what I know. And uh, if I can share that with you, maybe you can make your own personal discoveries and know what you'll know about dialogue. And I'm sure many of you have enough experience and discoveries now to be able to tell me what you know about dialogue. But um, I'd like to read from just a paragraph from each of, the, each of the first chapters of these novels, these three novels, to give you an idea of uh, how monologues and dialogue can um, hopefully get the novel started without too much muss and fuss and get the reader into it. So J.C. Holland is uh, a kind of verbose, redundant character. He's kind of pompous and, uh, you know, he's the kind of guy that's very scared, but he doesn't want to show it. That's a lot of people, anyway. He lives He lives in a certain subculture of society, and Kitten lives in a, in a kind of a poor black uh, prostitute subculture. So J.C. starts it off. He's 19 years old at this point. He says, immediately, right off the bat, without further ado, here and now, I wish to say that much of what happened to me that fateful weekend is completely unprintable, since it happened with a lady, colored, of ill repute. So all pornography seekers are warned to seek elsewhere. I wish to make that point quite clear before proceeding further. And then Kitten, after JC's chapter, she comes in in her first chapter and says, wait a minute. <laughs> I put the thing in the wrong place here. <laughs> here goes me. I'm in the big chair. In come this trick by itself. College Joe. I can tell him anywhere. She it. Just would walk like he ain't got no toes. Jittery. Key rises, he jittery. Now there's Kitten located in the cat house. And they go on to have their first encounter and then three years later they meet again and what then became titled Here Goes Kitten, a title I've always regretted it. Uh, I was kinda convinced to change the title and get Kitten's name in it by the editor of Dell who brought out the paperback and uh, I wish I'd have stuck with my original title but I thought he had a point at the time. Anyway, JC says, a lot of water has gone under the dam or no, a lot of water has gone over the dam since I, James Cartwright Holland, last came upon the printed page, and therefore, for several reasons, I herewith return, the first of which is the remarkable literary success with which my first big opus, One Hundred Dollar Misunderstanding, met. Ergo, I am flattered to the quick by the undeserved praise my initial endeavor elicited from such renowned critics as, albeit for one, McCaffrey Dubinsky, whose profound thesis, Lack of Communication in the Modern World, has become a beacon in my life. And Kitten starts out with, here goes me, sitting at the bar with a couple Johns, doing the spit back, trying to make interesting conversation. And guess who come along? Guess who walked right up behind me and tapped me on the shoulder? Some trick I had in a cat house three years ago. Yeah, some college boy. I bring to my apartment, and we had this big thing with $100. And I locate her in a B-Girl joint, where she's a singer. And- pusher of drinks, etc. So they have that encounter, which in that encounter, JC begins to tell outright lies. And Kitten, of course, comes through with the truth, which was sort of a neat trick, because you have to re, You have to study how people lie <laughs> to get that kind of dialogue. You know? and here's the beginning of the third one. They'd been rioting in city after city across the nation, but not here. Don't let it happen here. This was a motto both the city and county were combined on. We joined forces to amass a tremendous effort. We enlarged both our police forces, given the firemen riot training, spent thousands for special riot equipment, and we'd alerted the National Guard. We'd done everything we could think of to prevent it, you see. So when it came, we were beautifully prepared. It gets, uh, it gets it goes from, I guess, kind of uh, bawdy, lighthearted humor in the first one to uh, social satire in the third. And Kitten here, saying, uh, Us working girls hanging out in the paradise, waiting on a police raid. Rescue me, playing on a jukebox. My theme song. Yeah, cause I was flat out broke and down in the mind. Else I'd be on the phone to my most mellow tricks, trying to get one of them to keep me for the weekend. But what's the use? Nary area one gonna come over here to fetch me. Not tonight. Cops all over, thick as flies on a slop bucket. And they ain't letting no, none of us go over there. Wolfie tried to carry a couple of his broads over, they get turned back at the bridge. So that sets them up for the third. Any questions? Yes. well. you uh, I think had Well I think you know, in retrospect I in retrospect I know that what I did was a kind of dialogue with a kind of flimsy beginning of the character who was being described by the male character when I first began to write it and J.C. was a little you know, more, he wasn't the Dumkoff that he turned out to be and eventually. Uh, and then I kind of pursued that dialogue and uh, just gradually, you know, much to my surprise even, uh, the character began to grow in my mind and become very, very real. So I think it was just through my dialogue with, well, who are you, and you know, what do you look like? How does your hair feel to you? Uh, how do you feel living inside this body of yours, etc.? You know, and she began to become very real. Yes. Sure. Everybody hear that? Uh, She says it's important to listen to people closely, and uh, so that they kind of run a tape in in your head about how they talk, and then you can become anybody. Yes? The the real problem is in the real world. Ninety percent of communication, particularly social communication, is nonverbal. Right. So the art of, you know, the fiction writer is to somehow be able to grasp that nonverbal communication. Yeah. And mm-hmm. get it into just one channel. Get it into one. In terms of, because it's going to have to be verbal in the novel. Okay. You cannot communicate other than by what we come work. All right. He, he he is saying that not what, 90% of communication in the world is non-verbal, And the the uh, trick is to make that work in the novel or the short story. To get uh, Yeah. And uh, I like the device of having one character describe the action of another. Yes. Because that brings out another dimension. They can both describe the action, but one will see it from a different perspective. And so then the reader gets some multi-dimensional conception. Yes? How do you find the structure of the uh, storyline of a novel, given all the different third says, Well, uh, repeated, uh, oh. How do you plan the uh, structure of the story when, when you're starting out, when you're with all this emphasis on character? Actually, to me, it's a kind of again in that dialogue between the, the writer and the character. What happens in my case is that uh, the characters kind of begin to dictate the story they want to star in, and uh, I have to say, okay, maybe they, maybe we'll do this scene, maybe let's try this scene, and now. Uh, that one again let's do a replay on that and see if you can do it better oh, okay that works all right where do we go from here and uh maybe i have a <coughs> excuse me an idea of what i want the whole thing to have said by what the impression the book leaves i mean i know you know i usually write that down so i got to keep that in mind but that's more or less like where i want the ball to come out but they kind of lead me through the thicket to the end when things are really working well. You know, the characters dictate the story, the characters create the story. Yes? Yes? Um but I'm to speak one more. Uh huh. Okay, suggestions on how to make the dialogue two-sided as compared to one-sided. Huh? Yeah. Uh, again, I have to go back to the idea of having a dialogue with the character. In other words, what I do is I formally sit down and write out questions to that character. And maybe they sit for two, three days. They usually don't sit longer than three days before my mind begins to kind of hear from this character, this figment of my imagination. And the character begins to tell me who he is, and at that point I'm beginning to get into him. And if I have more questions, I write them down and I write out what he's telling me. And at that point, I begin to the character begins to come alive, and I just kind of water and give sunlight to that process, give attention to it, energy. Does that help you? Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, You've done in form, but it works. Okay, how do... You make the quality so good. Well, okay, yeah, that's... How do you you keep a monologue from becoming self-indulgent, from becoming the the writer's being self-indulgent? I compare that to... um, thinking of it as, as kind of an imaginary play that is happening and you are the director and these characters are actors and they're kind of improvising, but you've got to ride herd on them and uh, tell them to not be so long-winded, to be concise, to be consistent, and, you know, you're the one that has to select out of all the jabber, it's just like if you, if you take a tape recorder for an interview, you know, you have to select out of all the jabber things that are pertinent to put into the article the interview. And uh, it, it's a great discipline. It, it means that you, the writer, have to be kind of ruthless at cutting down and trimming out all the irrelevance. And yet, you know, if you have, like in the case with J.C. Holland, I want to I wanna give the impression that he's redundant and verbose, but I want to be concise at the same time. So I, occasionally I just get him to repeat certain notions in a kind of pompous way, and that gets over the idea, and we can, then I can move on from there. Does that help you? Okay. Yeah. Yes. Is the book written in the first person? Yeah, it's, uh, it's two first-person points of view. The J.C. Holland tells his version, and Kitten tells hers, and they alternate chapters all throughout all three books. In in, when I'm doing my dialogue with my character, my question and answer with the character, is this the preliminary stage, or do I find myself going back to it after I've gotten the writing going? Yes. Right. I find myself. If if I've done the, I find that as the more experience I get this I get, if I do it thoroughly, to begin with, the process becomes so automatic that I don't have to do it. Formally, as a kind of write-down of questions and wait for the answers, it's, I say, well, now what? And they tell me. <laughs> so you have two really well-developed characters in the situation, and you go for it with the three-day. What's that? I have really well-developed characters you in the... You have these two characters. You have these two well-rounded characters, and it's your preliminary stage, and then you feel to be so comfortable with them, that you can just go for it with me. Well, she's in I have these two well-rounded characters and I feel so comfortable with them, I can just go with them for the manuscript. Yes and no. Uh, when I'm lucky, yes. Most of the time, there's an ongoing dialogue between me, the writer, and them, these figments of my imagination, and sometimes my wife runs in and wonders who's there in the workroom with me. But uh, most of the time, I have to kind of do a continuing... Dialogue with the characters for them to keep becoming more real and keep explaining themselves more. Yes. Can you give us some examples of the types of questions you ask your characters very early so you can get you know, the information, most information, information? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm toying around with an idea for a novel now about two brothers, one who becomes a derelict and one who becomes a millionaire, and they meet later in life. And uh, I'm trying to do it in this style. That I, that I developed in $100 of the alternating first-person chapters. And uh, so I've written out some questions uh, to both of them, really. Like, how did you feel about your brother when you were growing up? And then I want answers from each. And I'm not going to, the story is, is, is going to occur when they're in their 40s, but I want to get their past. And, uh, you know, I say I have a few bits of information. The one brother kind of dropped from sight so why did you drop from sight and uh, why did you return and uh, to the other brother how did you feel about your brother dropping from sight disappearing and being declared dead after seven years and uh, how do you feel about him returning um uh, are you really in sympathy with this you know or are you just pretending to be happy that he's alive and so on and uh, when i After the Writers' Conference, I'll go back and pick that up and see what they have to say and go on from there. Yes? I'll repeat the question: How do you, when you're developing a character who is not sympathetic, and would not be a sympathetic person in, in life, and everybody would tune him out, how do you keep readers interested in this character? Is that the question? Uh, good question. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, well, in the case of the character in in in, in Hundred Dollars, the, the the boy, um, actually the the Europeans find him. A, the Europeans are far more um, sympathetic to them than Americans. Americans really don't like them, uh, except that they're fascinated. In other words, maybe it's kind of like uh, the process is like people like to gossip. And so here's a, here's a character they can think of in terms of, oh, gossipy, you know, maybe. Or maybe, I really don't know. The, the, I can't give you an answer to that. It's kind of aesthetic feel. I think you just have to know when you're going overboard and pull back and rearrange and reword you know make him he he may have a choice of he may be able to say something several different ways and if you pick out the right way for the right instance people can kind of say "oh," but they'll still sort of chuckle and go on with them that's about the best I can do on that one yes She's, that's a good point. She's saying that uh, in answer to that, her, the other question, to feather in something endearing about the character. Uh, okay. Yes? Right. I think that's what makes villains uh, so compelling. Yeah? Yeah. Excuse me. Isn't it fun to hate somebody, a fictitious characters even? Also, isn't there perhaps a reason why he/she is the way she/he is? Or couldn't you ask her, yes. her in the dialogue why she's such a bitch? Yes. In other words, isn't there a reason why a particular character is unsympathetic, and can't you ask that question and uh, add some sympathy to him? Yes. If you get If I get the answer from the characters, does the reader need to know it? No. Not necessarily, unless it's not at all, unless it's uh, definitely part of the action in the story. Yes? Okay, would I tell about how I, uh, in effect, reveal this about the, about the character's past and, uh, in, in the narrative? Yeah. Actually, at this stage of the game, I don't really know how I'm going to do that, but I, have to, I, I do know I have to know these characters far better than I do now in order to uh, get this thing off the ground. In other words, they have to become real to me before I can stand a chance to make them real to readers. So when they become real to me, and the process is kind of already underway, uh, then I will begin the job of... I I have a general idea of what the story is going to be. And so I will... When I feel that they are ready to kind of tell me how how this story is going to develop, I'll start the process of writing. And when I do that, I'll bring in whatever details seem pertinent at any given time in the action. Pardon me, I can't hear you. What are some general techniques for bringing in uh, kind of biographical detail about characters? Well, uh, a character can encounter a situation in the story which reminds him of something out of his past and he can bring it up and... Give it as an example of maybe how he behaved in the past in this situation, but he's not going to do that this time, or it looks like he will do that this time, or whatever. Yes? Yes? really, I probably spend, you know, more time gestating on a on basic idea. Uh, that process probably takes decades, and then something that has been gestating bubbles up into my conscious mind, and I begin to see it as a possibility for a, a, a story or a novel, and uh, then I begin the process of refining the characters and getting to know them, and then I be, get into the writing of the novel. Yes? how did I get into the head of the black girl in that social milieu? Uh, Well, I grew up in in an orphanage in the middle of a black ghetto in Philadelphia. So I was familiar with, and also in the summertime, I would go down to my, visit my father's people who lived on uh, what had been a plantation in Rebel, Kentucky. So I got two fixes on black people, rural and urban, and had lots of encounters all growing up. And so I, my ear was familiar with the, you know, dialect and, but still I had to bring the character alive. Yes? Do I actually write down the interviews I have with my characters? Uh, it, it occurs both ways, internally and written, but when, when I'm starting out I usually make it f- a formal thing because, in other words, I want to devote so much Time and effort to writing every day, and if I'm not ready to do the the prose, or, you know, to start piling up pages that are going to become the novel, then I uh, spend my time this way. I formally interview them and write down the answers. Yep. I have a little trouble hearing you. Yes. I uh, Do I write the whole uh, whole monologue of one character and then the whole monologue of another and then cut them up and make them alternating chapters or do I do them as, as alternating chapters? I usually do them in bits and pieces and I may begin in the middle and work backwards toward the beginning and then forwards toward the end. Uh, or I may sometimes even have the end to begin with and uh, write it first or at least a preliminary version of it and then begin at the beginning and work in through the middle. But I usually do it in, I like to think of it as uh, very akin to f- editing film, where you've seen it out, you know, this scene ends here because, you know, the overlapping comes here and you can think in terms of, I, I like to think in terms of uh, movie making, uh, kind of movie, we're doing movies for the imagination and do it that way. Any further questions? Yes. Themes? Oh, how important are themes to me? Like social, yeah. political themes? Well, I, I, themes are important to me. I, uh, you know, I, I think that the say when written prose began in ancient Greece, if that's where it began, that's where they began with storytelling prose. was uh, those, those uh, old playwrights had their gods and goddesses. And uh, we in modern times have our social forces. And so that just as people in real life represent social forces, you know, some of us are for the uh, nuclear freeze initiative and some of us are for building more nuclear arms in order to defend America. Now, these are two social forces that work in the country today. And uh, you know, we carry around within us, opinions, beliefs uh, about these. And they color a lot of our feelings and thoughts and so uh yeah my characters i like to think of having that dimension to them i i run into some trouble sometime from academicians who say your stuff is political <laughs> well but the world we live in is political and so the world my characters live in is political right. any more questions i guess that's it Thank you. And this concludes the recorded presentation on tape number 14. The 11th Annual Santa Barbara Writers Conference continues on tape number 15, which follows immediately.